Welcome to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality that is a path from egoic-based being to awareness-based being, a path that uncovers, reveals, and enjoys the sublime in everyday life. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very glad to have you here today. This episode is a Dharma talk that I gave, and it's it's really a, a my attempt to uh, respond to some questions that were coming up in my Sangha's meditation sessions. So every now and then uh, we have a session, a Monday night session, where members in the community break out into small groups with each other. They discuss their practice with each other in kind of an informal, friendly sort of way. And the idea is that in those conversations, questions may emerge, and then I ask them to kind of generate those questions and, and, and pitch those questions back to me so I can help better clarify any points of confusion or, or uncertainty or unclarity around their understanding or my understanding or our understanding of the path. So it's, it's, it's really meant to be part of the dialogue that I'm trying to uh, support uh, with practitioners, that there's an ongoing dialogue between me and them and all of us around what it means to be on the path as a lay practitioner in modern 21st century life. And in this talk, I, I, I attempt to answer these, these questions that were coming up with the frame around clear seeing or seeing clearly. And in exploring what is involved in a process or a practice path of seeing clearly, I look into the relationship between contemplation and vipassana meditation. This is one of the questions that came up. What is the relationship between a contemplative practice or contemplation itself where you might analyze and reflect on things consciously and how does that relate to Vipassana meditation? I also attempt to answer a question around uh, problems with addiction to thinking and how addiction to thinking might develop and be relieved with uh, a a thought-friendly approach to meditation. And at the end, I I attempt to answer a very dense question about the paradox of practice, which raises the, the question, if we're already awake, why do we need to practice at all? So I had a fun time responding to these questions, and I will uh, next week continue to respond to a big question that had come up in this in this uh, outbreak session or breakout session. So I hope you enjoy today's talk. Um, and quickly, before I give it to you, if you're at all able and interested and feeling generous, please consider supporting the show. There are some simple ways of doing that in the show notes. You can take a class with me and Terry. You can. Uh, we have so- several inexpensive products on our site, like online courses covering the functional elements of yin yoga, meditation, Chinese medicine, and yang yoga, as well as a book that I co-wrote with Michael Brooks. Um, and also an opportunity to be a member in our practice community called the Riverbird Sangha, where we offer weekly classes in meditation, yin yoga, qigong, and yang yoga. So I encourage you to, if you're at all interested in, in, and generously uh, inclined, please support the show, and I thank you in advance for your generosity. It's very much appreciated, and um, big bow to you for that. Okay, now without further ado, I bring you today's talk called On Scene clearly.
for tonight's talk, uh, which is going to be a little bit unusual in that I'll be uh, responding uh, or offering some responses to some questions that were generated in the small breakout groups uh, that we had two weeks back. Um, and I wanted to try to, uh, I've been thinking about the questions that came up just in uh, sort of in a relaxed way throughout the last few weeks. I mean, haven't really written too much down about what I would say in response to the questions. Um, and uh, sort of inspired by the way our last, our, our first guest of, this, of the Sangha, Howie, last week, he spoke about um, the sort of the spontaneity of a give and take Q&A and how there's a fresh aliveness to that that is lost if everything's scripted and written out in advance. So I've tried not to script too much and preserve the, the spontaneity of a live Q&A. Um, but there was a phrase, there was a passage, I should say, that, that Howie had written in uh, his recent book, uh, the, the Stars in Our Pockets. And I, I shared the passage both uh, in the evening that he was with us, and then I shared it in my, my in-class last week. And I want to read it again, because there, there's, there's this passage and then a related passage from a, a, a Buddhist teacher that I've had that both speak to a central theme of the spiritual path. And I think if we can, if I can set it up from the beginning with these sort of Howie's phrase and then my, this teacher's phrase, I can use those as a pairing to, to then look at and open up the questions or sort of offer an initial structure of response to some of these questions. I think it will be helpful. So Howie's phrase that really caught my attention was, around the nature of perception and seeing clearly. And um, as I'll get into with one of the questions, the, a, a big component of spiritual practice, at least in the contemplative meditative path, is to see things clearly. And this is very, very poignantly articulated in, in the Buddhist tradition that um, refers to vipassana, the style of meditation that aims to literally see things clearly. So how he, how he wrote this, he said, maybe seeing clearly is an ongoing balancing act between seeing within a framework and seeing beyond a framework, between seeing with knowledge and seeing with wonder. And one of the things I, I really appreciate about this, this passage, this short passage, is that seeing clearly is a balancing act that involves, and he's not using this language, but it involves yin and yang capacity or yin and yang dynamic. There's the scene when you're in something, like say you're in the on the dance floor level, you're in the dance of the experience. They're seeing it from that level. And then they're seeing from beyond the framework that you're in. So as uh, an organizational teacher at Harvard refers to as the, as the balcony view, you, you zoom out of the dance floor and you can see things from the balcony. And being able to uh, sort of toggle between the two allows us to see more completely what's going on. We can see what's up and up close and intimate when we're on the dance floor. And we can see things more comprehensively and, and more contextually when we're looking down from the balcony. And I think uh, the way I'm trying to speak to meditation practice, both those modes of looking are um, encouraged or, and, 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 and allowed. But then um, how he also follows that phrase up with seeing clearly is also a balancing act between seeing with knowledge what do we claim to know? What do we claim to label with an idea and seeing with wonder, which is really in a way, of, I, I think of seeing through the construction of what we think we know. 
seen through the framework of the, of the concept and the idea and the, the um, sort of the, the language that, that encapsulates the experience and seen through that structure of the mind to see the directness of it, the, the immediacy of the experience, unmediated by thought. And it's not that one is privileged over the other. You know, there's a yin-yang relationship that you need, you need both to develop uh, a broader development of clear seeing. And clear seeing, I would say, also, is also not something that we just arrive at and sort of end at. We don't get there and then stop. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing balancing between seeing clearly from outside something and then going into it again, seeing outside of it and going into it. So I'll be coming back to that phrase a little bit in response to some of these questions. Um, but I, over the weekend, I was, as I sometimes do, I, as I go into my yin yoga practice before I meditate, I might pluck a Dharma book off the shelf that I haven't looked at in a while and randomly do the flip open and read what's there and see if it speaks to, it speaks to me and um, resonates with what's going on for me in my practice or teaching. And um, I had sort of a direct hit experience this weekend where I pulled down a book from the shelf from a, a British teacher in the Thai forest tradition named Ajahn Sachito. That's his monastic name. He's, a, he's from England, though. And uh, the book is called The Turning of the Wheel of Truth. So it's, a, it's sort of a reflection, a series of reflections on, on, on the Dharma, the, the wheel of teaching. And... What struck me immediately about this particular passage is how it, it speaks to the Dharma directly, but it also echoes and sort of continues on from what Howie was saying in his, his passage. <clears throat> so he writes, Ajahn Sushita writes, the Buddha encourages us to see things directly without bias, to be absolutely honest. So one of the phrases that is used in describing the practice path I like just that phrase itself, practice path. We're on a path that is cultivated through practice. But one of the phrases that is used in describing the practice path is to, quote, to clear the mind of all bias and to insightfully see how things have come into being. To clear the mind of bias and to insightfully see how things have come into being. He then continues, he says, it reminds us that the path is not about seeing something in particular. The path is not about seeing something in particular. Instead, it's about seeing clearly. It's about seeing clearly. And then he says, and this is what I'll conclude with from him, um, and we have the potential to do that. We have the potential to do that, a potential that has to be realized. So those last two statements, the path is not about seeing something in particular. This is something I, I love that, that phrase because it kind of knocks out the legs of so many misunderstandings about what meditation is. Because most people think the practice of meditation is about sitting down and having some particular experience that they can see in a way. So they have a calm mind, a quiet mind, a, a pleasant body, um, uh, an exuberant feeling of love and, and compassion or something. Some, some sort of experience, people are looking for some experience that will they can see that will validate that they're practicing well. 
what Ajahn Sachito is saying, it's about seeing clearly. So seeing and looking into whatever is occurring. And if we pair that with what Howie, how, how he spoke about it, that seeing clearly involves looking from within a framework and looking from without a framework. So we, and, and I really think, and I'll try to, if I have time tonight, try to thread this back to a very foundational principle of Buddhist philosophy is that the middle way is always a balancing act between not falling into the extreme extremes of certitude. I know absolutely what something is and falling into the other extreme of nihilism. I'm saying not, nothing can be known. It's all pointless. That there's a middle path here between both extremes. And seeing clearly, being able to go into and out of something, I think is, is, is part of the practice path that allows us to occupy the middle, to start to occupy a middle position. Okay, so that's all preamble. How am I doing so far? About 10 minutes in, that's pretty good. That's preamble to the questions that, some of the questions that have arisen. So the first question relates to some of the ways that I talk about, I think some of the ways I talk about meditation practice here or in trainings. And the question says, what is asking essentially, what is the difference? What's the difference between contemplative practice being, being contemplative about something and, and basic Vipassana practice. And so I'm, I'm sp specifically starting with this one because it, it, um, it, it contains so many elements of, uh, kind of confusion and misunderstanding around, I think around the way I try to speak about meditation. So let me start from the back end, which is, the, or the end of it, which is the, the issue around what is Vipassana practice. And I want to speak about Vipassana in a kind of two levels or two or two different ways there's what is called traditional vipassana which is a style or styles of meditation practice that were really developed in the late 19th century early 20th century in burma or myanmar and they were based on those those methodologies were based on older texts that you find in in the literature the, in, the, in the Buddhist literature, but they kind of stylized them in a particular way, adding specific technical elements. So, for example, the one that I'm most familiar with is called the Mahasi method, named after the monk Mahasi who developed it. So, Mahasi method is simply a method where you uh, note you make a silent notation or a tag of whatever experience you're having moment by moment. So it's a, it's a specific technique of how to observe and be with your experience. And, and there are other forms of Vipassana, uh, notably the one from um, Uba Kin, another Burmese teacher who his famous student was named, um, it's on the top of my tongue, um, Goenka. Goenka was the student who, who popularized Vipassana, this particular form of Vipassana, and kind of syndicated it all over the world. There's Vipassana meditation centers in every country, several, even many countries. But with each of these, they're, they're very stylized in terms of their technique. But if you, you zoom back a little bit to the, the broader meaning of the word Vipassana, which is often translated as to see clearly, or insight and insights that come from seeing clearly. Um, I would make the case that 
to do that, to really see things clearly in the way that both Howie and Ajahn Suchito are referring to, it involves becoming aware of how we're thinking and how we're seeing things. And, and then and we, we do that by going into it and out of it. So we, we go deeply into our experience where we may get lost in it for a little while. Um, we go through a period of uh, like a thought bubble about some topic or theme or conflict in our life. We come out of it, we get a different perspective. And it's in going back and forth that we start to have a more comprehensive understanding of what the dynamic is. And we start to see it more clearly, more comprehensively, which is different than trying to establish a correct way of seeing the experience, only having one view. I'm being told I'm being signed out of my Zoom account for some reason, but we're all still here. <laughs> all's good. Um, a lot of the, the, the traditions that I've, or styles of Vipassana that I've seen from Burma really argue that there's a correct way to see. So for example, if you've, if you've heard any of the emphasis around being in the present moment, being aware that you're in the present moment all the, and, and trying to um, align with that experience as much as you can in your meditation. That's a view that the best way to see things is in the present moment. And, that's, and, and that the only kind of spiritual uh, insight or spiritual development that will occur is when we are able to see and steadfastly see within the present moment and not get lost again. But if you, if you juxtapose that view about practice with the kind of comprehensive balancing process of clear seeing that both Howie and Ajahn Sachito are referring to. We can't just only have one mode. What I'm trying to argue for is that we can develop multiple ways of knowing, multiple modes of looking into our experience to develop a broader, clearer sense of it. So contemplative practice and, and, you know, would be more along the lines of the broader emphasis that I try to bring to meditation to encourage a way of multiple ways of looking and listening and getting to know what your experience is, like the content of your experience, but then also starting to really appreciate how your experience is comes to be. And that, that comes back to this Ajahn Suchito phrase here where he quotes a passage from the Buddha, which is the, to, it's the purpose here, the practice path is to clear the mind of bias and to inci- insightfully see how things have come into being. So, which is, a, again, a, a slight difference of phrase to the way you normally hear Vipassana described. And, and the phrase there that's slightly different is to see how things have come to be or how things have come into being. This implies we're watching a process at play. We're watching sort of the, what I try to often describe as the backstage view of a play. We're walking, we're watching and observing how our, our experience is constructed. And in doing that, we, we really gain a, a very different perspective on the content of our experience when we see it in construction process. Right? And so the difference in what I'm getting here now is the difference between being identified with the thought, I'm the, th- I'm the one thinking this thought, I'm the owner of this thought, and, and the difference between that and just observing a thought arise and cease on its own, independent of whether you chose to summon that thought 
fight with your conscious mind, that process of seeing a thought arise and cease, or a whole energetic wave and crest and, and fall, when you watch those processes play out, you start to realize that they're happening due to causes and conditions that you're not, sometimes you're aware of them, but sometimes you're not aware of all the causes and conditions that are coming to be that bring these things into being. But you see their process at play and what is challenged is the very central notion that you're the one having the experience or you're the, you're the one that is defined by the experience is a better way to say it. You're, you're aware that you're having the experience, but you're not defined by the content of the sensation or the content of the thought or the content of the feeling. You much more take a sense of identity with the awareness or the consciousness that's present to these things, present and aware of these things. <clears throat> so that's the basic breakdown between uh, what I would say, the way I'm speaking about contemplative practice and, and pure or traditional Vipassana. The contemplative practice that I'm suggesting is a another way of developing clear seeing. It's a, it's a less stylistically technique-driven way of developing clear seeing, and it's a more creative, um, exploratory way of, of looking into your experience and, and getting familiar with it. So that's question one. Second question was around thinking addiction. And I'm going to try to paraphrase some of the bits of the question here, but um, the, the, the person that wrote the question said, I feel legitimate addiction to ruminative, repetitive thinking and find that the instructions geared toward encouraging wandering or today's practice, which intentionally reflected on life situations prior practice, that both of these elicit rumination. So if the instruction encourages wandering or if there's a reflection that prompts something from life before the practice, that this can lead to further uh, rumination or more proliferation of thought. Then the question continues, my understanding that we get, my understanding is that we get stronger at whatever we practice. And that makes me feel like I'm just strengthening rumination and repetitive thinking in my, at times in my practice, which feels like it increases suffering in me and tends to do so. So that she said, this doesn't feel like a great alignment in practice for me. And I'm curious on your thoughts. <clears throat> so the reason First off, I really appreciate this question, and I love all the questions that came in for their honesty and, and their, their directness. Um, but one of the things I think is really valuable in this process that we're, we're doing now over several weeks in terms of practicing, reflecting, raising questions, getting to discuss it with, with, with your peers and friends, and then bringing the questions back and, and, and churning through it again. One of the things that I think is valuable here is that uh, it's, it's very easy for me to think I'm explaining something clearly only to be it for it to be interpreted in a way that I would not have ever really uh, anticipated by the way I framed it. And that's not a fault of mine so much. And it's not a fault of uh, lack of interpretive skills on your part. It's just like what happens in communication that, that, that there's certain things that get assumed and then, and then they, there can be sort of, um, discrepancies in terms of what's intended and what's received. So when I read this question, the, the thing that kind of jumped out at my mind first was in the phrase instructions geared toward encouraging wandering. And I realized as I was sort of reflecting on that word encouraging, that encouraging can mean multiple things potentially, <laughs> depending on how you'd hear it. 
Um, and in the way that I feel I hear this question, I imagine that if the, this person felt they were that I was encouraging them to wander, it might set up the view that this practice is about really thinking a lot in the meditation and that you sh if you're going to do it correctly because I'm encouraging wandering, then you have to get up and start wandering in your mind a lot for it to be like a good meditation. And then that, I think it, as this person's accurately describing, that, that really created a kind of, kind of a forced pressure around the experience of wandering mind that continued to create more agitation, likely because of the content that was coming up within the, in the, in the wandering. So I would say I'm not so much explicitly saying it's important to wander or that you have to like, encourage wandering as it, like make it happen or uh, sort of develop it to happen in your meditation. It's more, I'm trying to um, re release the tension that most people experience when their mind does wander. So the, so the, the wandering mind happens. It happens due to causes and conditions that are largely outside of our volitional control. As I've been trying to say recently, it's, it's, it's the experience of consciousness within us taking a nap. Again, and if our consciousness, if we, if we zoom out to cosmological scale, our consciousness is literally the universe waking up to itself through us. So our consciousness wandering is just nature doing its thing in a, in, a, in a nap state. And most people, when they experience that, that the experience of wandering is usually explicitly discouraged by the meditation instruction. So if, if the instruction is given to be present, to be aware of your thinking as you're thinking, to not get lost, to be anchored to your breath, if the, any form or shape of those instructions are given, then wandering mind immediately becomes the outlier of the problem. And all I'm trying to do, the intention behind the instructions is to not uh, frame it as a problem. That in order to understand how we think, to develop clear seeing around our thinking, it involves a process of going into it. And that will mean getting lost in thought for a weird period of time and really kind of letting yourself spin on the yarn and then coming out of it and reflecting on if you if you feel like it or moving on to something else. But what I'm not trying to, to create is that internal division between being present and not being present. Um, and so the, enc the encouragement that I'm trying to give is more one of, of, of learning to practice a gentleness and a, and a compassion and a peacefulness in relationship to the experiences you notice when you're sitting. So it, it, it's, it, and that, and, and those, those qualities of, of gentleness, kindness, tolerance, peacefulness, those are qualities that allow us to explore in kind of a more objective way, what is coming up. But if we're fighting it and, 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 and shutting it down, that can, um, like a that can lead to repression, but it can also create this this really strong unnecessary struggle with the content of experience versus the scene of the content of the experience. So people struggle and 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 and, are, and usually when they have a bad meditation or they feel like they're having a bad meditation, it's because they feel like something they experienced was not supposed to happen, 
or that they didn't, or more deeply, maybe they feel like they didn't have the wherewithal to be with what was happening. So it's particularly if there's a very strong charge of something coming through the heart and mind. So that's why the, 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 the allowing of the wandering isn't so much to just proliferate and, 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 and sort of spin incessantly within it, but it's to, to, to let it be enough. And, and only you will really be able to make an assessment of what's enough, which is why playing the edge is so key. But to be with it enough so that we can start to understand it more. We can start to see it and, and get perspective on it. Now I'm I'm um, coming close to my time. So I think I'm gonna answer one more question briefly and then I'll save the, the second part of this, uh, the questions that came up for next week. Cause there's a, there's a big question that I think will probably take the full session to, play, uh, to flesh out. Um, but while I'm taking a little more time, let me just say, oftentimes I would say, and just reflect on this in your own experience, but our experience of suffering, our experience of dukkha or distress, among other things, one of the things that really supports and strengthens the distress is a kind of an unquestioned idea or sense of identity with the content of the distress. You're the owner of it. And at, at many times when we're practicing, largely due to the fact that the, when practice conditions are quiet enough, it allows for content that we may have submerged in, our, in the lower unconscious parts of our psyche. It allows for that content to, to, to come up. And as it's coming up, it, there's a potential to, to really understand it more clearly in a new way from this perspective of where we are in our life. And to, I keep using the word in the, in the, in the yoga sessions, harmonize, but we can start to harmonize our relationship to it by not um, suppressing it and, and being kind of driven by the fears and worries within this energy there's a way that we can start to develop compassion, wisdom in relationship to it. Where, and, those, and it's those qualities of compassion and wisdom that start to transform it from something that's problematic to a harmonized feature of our being. And that, that takes time. Um, I don't think it's a, it's a light switch phenomenon. It's something that we go into and out of and go into and out of at a rate that is metabolizable, if that's a word. It's a rate that we can metabolize in our own being, which again, I, I'll be speaking more about it, I'm sure at some point, but this is where playing the edge with it is so important. Being able to go into it when we feel like we have the wherewithal. That's what I was trying to speak about with the idea of the zone of tolerance is making sure that the, the content of what you're experiencing is within your zone of tolerance so that you're not flooded, you're not triggered strongly, you're not um, even re-traumatized by the intensity of what's happening but it's at a, at a range that you, you can tolerate. And if it gets too hot, that's where I'm not encouraging you to let that go on any further. I'm saying I'm encouraging you at that point, if it gets too hot, pull back, come into more of a cooled out neutral space. So your perch, 
the contact of your hands or the, the, the field of sounds, for example. But then there's this question, and it's a, this is a big one, so it's, a, it's almost a bad joke to try to answer it now. But the question is, if we're already enlightened beings, as many teachers and teachings point to, why would the veils of illusion, the forgetting that we're already enlightened, of who and what we are, why would this happen? Why would there be dust settling in our eyes, which is a, a nod to... Um, the Buddha's first teaching, uh, when he, after he awoke, he, he felt like this, the, the reality and the truth of the reality that he had woken up to is so subtle that no one else would get it. So he, he didn't even consider teaching, trying to teach the Dharma. But there was a sort of mythical celestial being that came down and perched either on his shoulder or came, hovered in front of him and said, no, 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 no. There are um, a few people in the world that have just a little bit of dust in their eyes. There's just a little bit of flecks of distortion in their perception. And, and those, those, those people are actually your old five friends that you used to practice with, your old practice buddies from the ascetic days. They just have a little bit of dust in their, in, in their eyes. And if you, can, if you can wipe that from their, from their vision, they'll awaken too. So, but the, the heart of this question is if, if we are already enlightened beings, like how, it, sometimes you hear that awareness is already awake. We just have to re remember that fact. Why does the forgetting why do the veils of illusion come back? And the why part of that question, I can't answer. I don't have a compelling answer for it. And I could, you know, nod, make nods to mythology um, and things like that. And I encourage you to look into that if you're interested. But I, it's more to say that, and this is how I'm, I'm really trying to speak about practice now, is from what it's like. What is it like? And so we, do you have the experience of waking up to something that's bigger than, say, the, the pattern of identity you form through identification with thought and sensation and feeling? Do you have that experience of what it's like to wake up to something bigger, to a presence that's aware and holding what's occurring, but not defined by the content of what's occurring? And that's, and then you, you wake up to that, and that's what the practice backs us into sooner or later, to wake up to that quality of presence. And then you see from that awake awareness, even if it's like waking up out of a, a daydream, which is an experience you've all had, I'm sure. You wake up out of a daydream, it's the same thing. It's like, whoa, I was just lost in thought for a period of time. Now I'm back staring at my monitor for the 18th hour today, or <laughs> whatever it is. So you, you have that experience. And then under normal circumstances, I should say, it happens with such rapidity and frequency, everyone takes it for granted and no one sees how bizarrely weird it is. Right? And so we meditate and suddenly the eerie strangeness of what our consciousness is actually like strikes us very powerfully. So you can, you can imagine someone just in, the, in their garden variety of life going about doing their normal things in their day and hundreds of times an hour, if not thousands, their mind will drift into wandering and then they'll come back to feeling their body and getting the car or drift into wandering. But for the most part, you could probably, if you were put, 
put a, a rough estimate on, you could probably estimate that. I think scientists have tried to look into this, but 99, or sorry, not, not that much, but maybe 90 to 95% of their thoughts are just random wandering thoughts. And it reminds me of another Ajahn, another teacher from Thailand. This is a teacher who named Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I don't have direct contact with, but one of my root Dharma teachers, Rodney Smith, uh, was a monk under Ajahn Buddhadasa for a while. And Rodney shared this story, and I just want to share it with you. Apparently, at one point, Ajahn Buddhadasa was asked, how would you describe the world? How would you describe the world? And this is a man who never really left I don't, the, 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 the area where he grew up in Thailand. So he never traveled broadly. But his answer to that question was, how would I describe the world? His answer was three words, lost in thought. So of course he's describing a subset of the world, the human species, but majority of us, majority of the time are lost in thought. And it's happening, like, but it's not just we're continually lost in thought, we go in and out of it. We oscillate in and out of being awake and, and aware that we're awake and then lost in thought again. And meditation, as I was trying to say, makes this very explicit. And, and the explicitness of seeing the tendency of the mind to get lost in thought on its own, unbidden, uproots kind of the, the taproot of egoic identity as being the thinker. Because if, if you truly are the thinker of your thoughts, you might have be forced to make the ultimate conclusion that you're kind of a strange thinker. <laughs> Because of the randomness, the disjointedness, the, the swings, the volatility, the, sky, the highs of the lows. So, as Sachito says, part of the answer to this question around if we're already enlightened beings, well, on one level that's true. There is that which in us that's awake. The Buddha is within. That There is that which is awake. So, it's, that which is awake is what's listening to me speak right now. That which is awake is what feeling your body right now. So there's that which is awake. And then that which is awake has this lifetime of habit and lifetimes of habit potentially, but a lifetime of habit of identifying with everything but itself. So as Sachito says, we have the potential to awaken. So it's like the sea. We all have the we have like acornness, the potential to awaken. But to grow into full realization, to stabilize in that wakeful state, that requires a practice. That requires a practice path where we start to notice the oscillation between consciousness being awake and consciousness dreaming. And really getting more familiar with that and starting to see it more clearly, more and more consciousness starts to awaken in more sustained ways. You wake up, like, so, you know, a simple hum, like humdrum example would be, uh, I forget who said it like this, but it's like, say you get, you get triggered by a spark of anger about something. And without practice, without any reference to 
being aware of the anger, if you just have skills and training and being identified as the one who's angry, that anger may have a very long cycle of life to it. But the more we can wake up to being aware of anger, not lost in the identity of being the one who is angry, it's like the half-life of that arc of energy of anger becomes much less, shortens. We can wake up out of something and see it more clearly. So again, why this happens? Why does consciousness forget itself? Why do we habitually get identified with things that consciousness is not? Like form, name and form, for example, like your name, your physical pattern of sensation, your emotions. Why do these things hook consciousness so frequently? That's a really good question. I don't have a clear answer, except it's sort of the way it is. It's like, that's why the sky is blue. The sky is blue because it's blue which is not a, a, like a, again, a scientific answer. It's an empirical answer. So I do fully believe that if you can hear me, you can feel your body. You can hear that bird chirp or know that you're thinking as you're thinking sometimes. That's awareness awake to what's happening. And the, the next step, and, and this is, we've looked at this a few times in different ways, but the next step is to wake up to awareness, knowing itself, sensing itself, which is in the way they in Zen describe the backward step. You take the backward step into awareness rather than uh, sort of the forward step into what we're aware of. So there's a leaning back into the source that is aware of the, the preceding content of our experience. But why that happens, that's a, that's a great question. I don't have a satisfying answer. At least one has not occurred to me. If there's a satisfying answer to you and you'd like to share it during the Q&A, please chime in. But um, I'm going to pause the Q&A there. Um, and actually, maybe I'm going to close just by reading these two passages again. Because maybe as we go into the meditation together, maybe the, the words from Howie and Ajahn Sachito can will kind of operate in your mind in a way that will help you look into your experience with more interest, curiosity, compassion as we go. So from Howie, maybe seeing clearly, maybe seeing clearly is an ongoing balancing act between seeing within a framework and seeing beyond a framework, between seeing with knowledge and seeing with wonder. From Ajahn Sachito, the Buddha encourages us to see things directly, without bias, to be absolutely honest. So one of the phrases that is used in describing the practice is to clear the mind of all bias and to insightfully see how things have come into being. It reminds us that the path is not about seeing something in particular, Instead, it's about seeing clearly, and we have the potential to do that, a potential that has to be realized. So let's realize it.
Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk uh, and my response to some of these questions. It's just the beginning. These questions are, are deep, contemplative questions that uh, really my, my responses are just meant to support your own exploration to the heart of these questions. And um, to that end, next week, uh, in the next episode, I should say, I'll be answering a, a, a really big question that comes up in, in many different ways, but it's sort of getting to the heart of what is the relationship between reducing our personal suffering and how does that contribute to any sort of improvement with many of the intractable problems we might see in the world? So what is the relationship between what we're doing on the cushion and any improvement in the kind of calamity we see in the world around us. So that, that's a big question to tackle. I'm going to save it for an entire episode. Uh, but I do look forward to tackling that, and I look forward to sharing it with you. So until then, until that next episode, please take care. Please stay safe. Keep practicing. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.